If you're like me, you've long been captivated by the story of Ernest Shackleton and the crew of his ship, the Endurance. With the goal of reaching the South Pole, Shackleton and his crew departed South Georgia on December 5th, 1914. Within six weeks, he and his crew found themselves frozen in ice. A month later, it became clear that the crew would have to weather the winter trapped in the slow-moving winter ice flows of the Weddell Sea. By November of that year, the shifting ice would crush the endurance, sending it almost two miles to the bottom of the seafloor and stranding its captain and crew atop an ice flow. I'm your host, Matt Kirkner. The story of their survival and the journey for help and eventual rescue is the stuff of legend. But it's a story that didn't end with the rescue. Instead, yet another chapter was added when earlier this year, the wreck of the Endurance was located the same two miles below the sea ice by an expedition departing from South Africa. In our last episode of the Tech Ed podcast, we talked with an individual who was aboard the expedition to locate and film the wreck at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. If you missed that episode, think about going back and listening to episode one in our discussion with Reach the World's Tim Jacob. In this episode, pun intended, we go even deeper with Jacob into the great work Reach the World is doing, the career opportunities available on an expedition such as the one that he was on, the autonomous underwater vehicles and other technologies that were fundamental to the success of the expedition, and even more. Just ahead is episode two of my conversation with Tim Jacob of Reach the World. Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. So, you know, part of the reason that you were able to be a part of this incredible expedition uh, is because of your role as director of the Traveler Program at Reach the World. I want to talk now a little bit more about that organization. Tell us about Reach the World and your role in that organization. Sure, yeah. Reach the World is a nonprofit, a global education nonprofit uh, based in New York City. Um, For about the last 25 years, it's been the mission of Reach the World to use virtual exchange, which I'll explain in just a minute, to connect students, K-12 students in the U.S., with global cultures, experiences outside of their own local experiences in order to help them feel more connected to the global community. So back when it was started, um, the the founder, Heather, was part of a journey that was sailing around the world. This started with a sea journey. It's fitting that uh, this was also a sea journey. But at the time, it was when, you know, uh, technology was just becoming available to consumers where you could communicate from a boat with classrooms. And I think at at times it was just an email maybe or a short call, Um, but being able to document a journey like a voyage around the world is a really incredible educational experience. And in the 25 years since then, things have progressed technology-wise. It's become much more accessible. I'd even say during the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of investment in getting students increased access to devices, more internet connection, certainly resources going into teachers being trained to use things regularly in their classrooms like Zoom. So it's a perfect setup for an educational experience because the ship had great internet. 
Um, I believe, and I, this is not uh, fact-checked, but I think I did the first ever Zoom call from the Weddell Sea, uh, on, not, on a, not on a ship, on the ice. I was standing on the ice above Sir and Shackleton's ship using a, a satellite unit um, called a BGAN and connecting through Zoom on my cell phone, which in and of itself is something Shackleton couldn't even have dreamed of because he was so isolated from the rest of the world. So I was in this unique place where I obviously was very privileged to be able to go on this expedition, but by being there, I could share it through a number of of ways, through video calls, through written articles, uh, with the over 30,000 students around the world who followed. And in that way, you don't have to be connected to, you don't have to live on a coast and be around ships all the time. You don't have to like have known anything about Ernest Shackleton. You can feel a personal connection to traveling, to global cooperation, to field scientists, to just the thrill and curiosity of exploration from your classroom, which is a pretty unique thing. A very unique thing. When you think about the ability to use technology to really put the student right in the middle of, of what you're experiencing. And that's awesome that you had the first Zoom call from the ice and the what I'll see. That's, that's a great notoriety. <laughs> My claim to fame. Exactly. Well, among many, but that's a that's just a, a great story. And the experience, I want to talk a little more about the experience you were able to give these students. It was unique. You know, you carried them through this this journey, I know. And, and I actually uh, followed some of it along the way. Just being able to communicate with more than 30,000 students around the globe and, and having them experience this with you. What kind of feedback have you gotten from them? What kind of experience were they able to take away from the information and the video and the, the communication that you were able to send from the What I'll See all around the globe? It is, it's been a little overwhelming in a positive way because I didn't, even though I've, I've worked for Reach the World for over a decade, it's, it's amazing to get such immediate feedback and immediate educational impact from the students themselves. For example, I mean, one of my live streams from the ship was with Dr. John Shears, the expedition leader. Uh, he's got a polar medal from the queen. He's, he's a big deal in the polar world. And any student in the U.S. who was brave enough and wanted to could step up to that camera and ask him a question. And many did. And they got to speak directly to this, this you know, big deal in the polar community while he was leading a search for, you know, the world's most famous undiscovered at the time shipwreck. So that was really cool. You could, I could see it in their eyes. I could hear it in their questions and I could tell it was a special moment for them that way. After I've gotten back, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of field trips, both in person and virtually with classrooms that participated in the expedition. They have uh, performed for me original songs that they wrote about Shackleton. This is a, a school, amazing school in St. Louis that has really like no connection, perhaps previously to polar exploration. We're singing about Shackleton and his dogs and endurance and what it's like in the Weddell Sea and what the wildlife is like and what it takes to journey there. And all of these things that I would assume are, are not based in prior knowledge, but are things that they gained through uh, this experience. So I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. I am getting used to my newfound sort of celebrity amongst the K through 12 crowd in the US. Uh, I got a student came up to me in, at a sport event in Soldier Field recently and like, Mr. Tim, hey! <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like it, it is excited the, the imagination of a lot of kids and has really maybe started a, a passion for some aspect of this experience with them, whether it's marine robotics, field science, working and living on a ship, 
whatever, whatever the, the takeaway is that a student had. It's got to be incredibly fulfilling for you to know that you had an impact on that many students and, and a celebrity for all the right reasons for bringing these these great STEM experiences and great lessons to young people. And, and I'm going to say inspiring them around what, you know, what their careers could look like. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Is there anything from a, you know, in terms of how you would summarize it, what do you hope this experience that you gave these 30,000 plus young people, you know, what do you hope they do with that? What effect do you hope that that has on them? It's always been Reach the World's mission to inspire curiosity and global cooperation. And I feel like we did all of that. Um, These are resources that you could have experienced live and many did. These are resources that will live on long past us and and students and teachers can can use in an on-demand way in years to come. So my hope is really that students understand at an earlier age than I did that the idea an explorer is not, you know, just Ernest Shackleton. He's not the only ideal of who an explorer is. You can be an uh, electrician, you can be a navigator, you can be a cook, you can be a field scientist, you can be a helicopter pilot, you can be an artist. There are so many ways that you can be an explorer. It's one of those job titles that is like, is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But once you see examples and you get to meet people who are on an expedition like this, who are just basically exploring their own curiosity and having a great adventure and doing what they do really well, it opens up a lot of doors uh, for kids who may not have considered a career in any one of those fields and thought of themselves as an explorer too. It's really a, it's a mindset of curiosity that is underpins everything that I try to do and what Reach the World tries to do. Inspiring that curiosity among young people is, is so very important. And this idea that any of us can be an explorer and that can be geographical or it can be any of these other endeavors that you talked about, but it all comes back to really being curious about your world and not just the world around you, but the world all the all around the globe and in some ways all around the universe. So great message there. On the subject of inspiring curiosity, everybody knows I'm kind of a, a fat guy that's fascinated with technology. You know, my curiosity has been piqued by the technology and the endurance. So we know that the discovery was a historic feat. The entire world's been waiting more than a century for this to happen. And in part of the credit, and you've talked about this a little already, Tim, is due to the advanced technologies that were deployed by the crew and the SAO Gullis too. What can you tell us about that technology that enabled the endurance's discovery? Another one of these topics I could talk about for hours. We talked a little bit about how the ship itself was so amazing and got us to the sink site. Once we got to the sink site, um, we used two AUVs, both the same kind of AUV called the Saab Sabertooth AUV. Uh, There's only a handful of them in the world. They're very expensive and complex machines. These are unique because they're sort of AUVs, autonomous underwater vehicles, and also ROVs, which are remotely operated vehicles. And the reason they're both is that they were tethered to the ship. So they didn't just sort of swim on their own, according to a computer program. They were tethered to the ship and could provide, I think they were sending back about 10% of the data it was collecting live to the the ship uh, so that when this AUV or ROV was down on, on the seabed, the operators on the back of the ship could get sort of a live feed of what they were looking at. So if they saw something of interest, they could stop serving, turn around and inspect what it was uh, without wasting too much time. Like I said before, it's lessons learned from previous expeditions. So these AUVs, the saber tooths, 
were fascinating. I spent as much time around them as I could. I was grateful to many members of the subsea team who, you know, gave me a lot of their time in explaining what they were and explaining to kids um, how they worked. The, the initial survey um, was a survey of box of about eight miles by 15 miles. So there's a big section of seafloor that we were surveying. The AUVs took about an hour to dive down that far and took about an hour again to come back up. And at that depth, at 10,000 feet underneath the surface of the frozen over Weddell Sea, batteries don't last very long. So they had maybe six to 10 hours uh, per mission where they could go down. And during that time, at least during the majority of the search, they were using uh, side scan sonar to do low frequency scanning of the seabed, looking for any big target. We knew it was gonna be a big target. We knew there wasn't gonna be much else down there. So um, they're around the clock from the moment we arrived to the moment we left, the subsea team was on the back deck 24 hours a day, operating in shifts, uh, whether there was a blizzard going on and it was 30 below, or it was something a little bit warmer and there were penguins squawking at them from the side of the ship. They were there monitoring that AUV, charging it, um, performing sort of the maintenance that you have to do to keep something like that running. The AUVs were are tested to that depth, were, were known to be okay at that depth. But even then, I mean, 10,000 feet under the water, when you're trying to operate marine robotics, it requires constant maintenance. I know there are some light bulbs that imploded. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of pressure on that AUV. So after the initial wreck was found or the initial um, identification of the wreck was finished, they brought the AUV back up and switched out the side scan sonar for a LIDAR laser mapping system that went on the bottom of the ship. There was a 4K camera and some special lights for illuminating something in the deep, dark, dark uh, depths of the Weddell Sea. Um, that, that technology combined basically over the course of three days, the AUV did slow passes over, around, all over the place, including the debris field around the ship, taking, I believe, 25,000 4K pictures and using doing a very comprehensive laser mapping of the surface, um, collecting the crazy amount of data that you could use to stitch together into one big composite picture. Um, you know, having... The goal of the survey, of course, is to make it so nobody ever has to go back to the ship again. It was very hard and very expensive. And my understanding from the subsea team is that in doing the type of surveying that they were able to do of the endurance wreck, they've set a new standard across the whole industry for how any shipwreck will be surveyed from now on. It's just, it's so good that for example, underneath two miles of water, any location on the wreck was pinpointed to about a centimeter of accuracy. Your DPS coordinates knew within a centimeter where, where you're talking about. And that um, some of the, the early images I've been able to see and the rest will be, I'm sure, shared in the National Geographic documentary that's coming out later this fall are so precise. You can see the nail heads that hold the ship together. You can zoom in on, on any artifact of which there were many. Um, you can really, really, really see this ship well. And I'm hoping that the, the results of that will be very immersive sort of 
museum exhibits and experiences where people can continue to, you know, swim through it, virtual reality, or, you know, any of these cool things that are now possible in our world of, of technology and really experience what it must have been like for that AUV uh, to, to swim around. We were, of course, watching with rapt attention from the, the back deck of the ship as that survey was being done. But I, all I can tell you is that the data and the mapping is astounding. It was unlike anything I could have imagined uh, being done at that depth. Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely stunning the the level of technology. And, and to your point, both the the temperature, because it's, you know, the water's got to be right around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, I would, I would assume zero Celsius, because it's just barely above freezing. And, uh, and, and to be doing that, and you mentioned it, you mentioned the feet and you mentioned the miles, but just to let that sink in two miles below the surface of the ice. So, you know, think about two miles, think about riding a bike two miles, think about running two miles. I mean, that's how far below the surface of the ice all of that is going on. It's also interesting, again, on this topic of converging technologies. You know, earlier this year, we've had both the dean of the Autonomous Vehicle Research Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the uh, the individual who leads a similar program at Texas A&M in a lot of the same technologies, LIDAR, mapping, lasers, big data. You know, I think your 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 term was crazy amount of data. <laughs> <laughs> My non-technical term. I love it. it. It explains it perfectly. So we talked about big data. We talked about LIDAR. We talked about lasers. Are there examples of how students can learn about this technology that you used uh, during this expedition, Tim? For sure. And it's just another great example of how virtual exchange can get you right into that a situation where it's being used in real life um, from wherever you are learning. Uh, for example, one of our, uh, a school in Oostburg, Wisconsin, which has an amazing marine robotics team and participates in the MATE ROV competition each year, um, was one of our most uh, engaged followers of the expedition. We partnered with the MATE ROV competition to really bring in as many of these young people around the world who have an intense interest at a young age in marine robotics, and even just give them access to professionals who are working in that field, trying in that moment to solve a very real world problem using this sort of technology. So, I mean, I can't imagine from a, a teacher standpoint, a more authentic learning experience. I was lucky to have a number of the subsea team members, including Chad Bonin, uh, who has spent many years working offshore and knows so much about marine robotics, pausing in the middle of the search for endurance to walk me and walk our students by extension around the Sabe V as it was charging, pointing out all the way the things work, pausing for live stream events and answering questions from the Mate ROV teams as they were considering these own challenges that they're working through as they devise their own ROVs. So the idea being they can learn from practicing professionals and also just see what it's like to work in that field. So someday, hopefully, those students can be working alongside Chad and they can be the next people operating these AUVs or ROVs on expeditions like these in the future. So imagine being able to just look inside from the outside. You're a student in the Oostburg School District in, in this case. And then this, this idea that you've got these scientists on board along with you that are willing. I mean, this is just groundbreaking technology, groundbreaking research that they're doing, groundbreaking exploration and discovery, pausing in the middle of that to be able to share that message with students around the globe, including those students at Oostburg High School. It's just a, just a fantastic example, Tim, of, of the partnership that you were able to be a part of. Yeah, we're all working towards 
If, if you're interested in STEM, if you're interested in these sorts of careers, there's nothing more valuable than being able to shadow virtually in this case, someone who is doing it at the highest level. Um, so I'm very appreciative of the time that those expedition members shared with students. And I could tell from you know watching the live stream events and some of the articles that we wrote that it made a big impact on, on students as they're in this pivotal moment, uh, trying to decide what they wanna do for their careers. So there again, those technologies converging and to be right there. I mean, when you said that some of the work that was being done was unprecedented, that kind of set a new standard for, for underwater exploration and in the most you know brutal of environments as well. Uh, just a great characterization of the, the incredible technology, uh, incredible people working on the SAR Gullis too as well, right? I mean, just we talked about some of the scientists and some of the other folks that you were engaged with, but there's a whole crew on that vessel that's responsible for, uh, you know, for operating it in that environment, for for bringing a, a group of, of people safely, you know, into the, the rec site and, and back out of it. What kind of careers, what kind of educational backgrounds and skills and experience do the people that are actually operating uh, that vessel have, Tim? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm glad you asked it because I was so impressed by the SA Gullis 2 crew. It was a big mission of our virtual exchange for Reach the World to bring their stories into this as well. Um, there was a fantastic relationship amongst the, the expedition team that were sort of guests of the SA Gullis 2 and the crew and, and the officers who work on the SA Gullis 2 10 months out of the year. And I was lucky to get to know a lot of them and include them in Reach the World live stream events. Um, I did not know a lot about the different roles on a ship like that. I learned a lot about what a purser and a bosun and, you know, all of these very nautical terms mean. Um, I learned a lot about how in order to become a captain of a ship like that, you have to start at the very bottom and you have to learn everything about that ship before you are put in charge of the people who will be running those departments. We were lucky to have a number of cadets, South African cadets aboard the ship who were uh, training to be officers on the ship in different areas, um, either in the engine room or, or on the bridge. So I got to meet all, all the people. There were about 40 South African crew on the ship. The captain of the Sagals too is Captain Knowledge Bengu, who has been the captain of that ship for many years. A uh, very impressive person who uh, worked alongside a dedicated ice navigator to get us in and out of the Weddell Sea. Got a chance to speak with them all. Got a chance to really show what it takes to live and work on a ship. Uh, two kids who may have never considered it. And I was a good person to tell that story because I have never really considered how hard it is to work offshore and how much you need to know, especially when you're in such an inhospitable environment in order to keep what is your lifeline to the world operating and safe and you know comfortable beyond that for, for the people on board. So got a chance to, to speak to a lot of crew members and was incredibly impressed by what it takes uh, and what they do every day. It's amazing. The A lot of those titles I had heard, purser, captain, cadet, dedicated ice navigator. That's a new one on me. Um, and it's just a, really an example of how many great careers and great opportunities are available across the, the world of STEM. And a lot of them are 
are things that we've never, ever thought of. But thanks to you and, and your commitment and the work of Reach the World, now we have students and young people all around the globe that know that that's a job that they could have uh, if they're interested. So so just a, another testament to the, the great work that you're doing. We've talked today a couple different times about convergences of technology. I want to turn our discussion to a different type of convergence uh, that we have never talked about here on the TechEd podcast. So we'll be blazing a new trail, not quite as profound as the one you blazed earlier this year, but blazing a new trail nonetheless. The discovery of the endurance, it's a great example of, I think, the convergence between STEM, science and technology and engineering and math, and the world of history, which is one we haven't really explored, as I, as I suggest. How can science and technology, engineering and math skills enable students who have a love of history to pursue a hands-on career in that field? Mm. Well, I'm a good example of it. I'm, I love history. Like, history is my thing. And, um, you know, I, I got to be a part of this expedition that certainly had a big STEM focus, could not have been successful without the, the scientists and the STEM-related expedition members and crew on board the ship, and at the same time could not have been successful without the historians who are pouring over the primary documents, the journals um, held in archives around the world of the original uh, endurance members, without the coordinates of Frank Worsley and his incredible uh, ability to use a sextant to get exact uh, latitude readings, we would maybe never be able to see the endurance again. It might have just been gone forever. At least it gave us an idea of where to look. In my opinion, um, history and social studies is all about understanding the past and understanding what lessons we can learn in order to do a little better next time sometimes or just maybe not make the same mistake twice. And STEM and STEM fields are all about creative problem solving, um, solving challenges, and the two work so well together because it is a baseline of understanding, or at least in, in the case of the expedition, knowing what, what was not successful last time, and then understanding what is available to do it differently the next time for the subsea team in particular, as they were engineering these really creative solutions to problems that are age-old problems with exploring within the Weddell Sea. The ice has not really changed. The weather has not changed. It's the same problems and you need a fresh perspective. You don't have to start from zero. You can look at history to give yourself a platform on which to go even further. So that combination of STEM and history, a great platform for solving problems and, and solving problems you absolutely did on this expedition. It's just a, just a great story. We're going to get into one last question for you, Tim, but before we do that, I know that you're message today has really fascinated our audience. And if they want to learn more about Reach the World, if they want to learn more about your work on the SAR GLS2, where do they go? A couple of places you can go. If you want to learn about Reach the World specifically, you can go to about.reachtheworld.org or just reachtheworld.org. Um, you'll find it. I'm sure that is our basic landing page. If you want to learn more about the Endurance 22 expedition, specifically in our virtual exchange, you can go to explore.reachtheworld.org, and that will uh, give you some access to some of the long-term learning resources and on-demand ways that you can relive and, and experience with your kids, uh, if you're a teacher, this whole adventure all over again. And watch your site visits on those websites on the day we release the podcast, because I guarantee you, you're going to see a ton of traffic. This has been such an interesting conversation. I want to end our day today, Tim, with the one question we ask every single guest here on the Tech Ed Podcast. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to a high school sophomore as they consider their future pathway, what would that advice be? 
Uh, it's been a while since I've been a sophomore <laughs> in high school, but I remember that it's a year where you're really starting to figure out what you might want to do for the rest of your life. And reflecting on that, my advice is, or at least my reflection is that if you would have told me five years ago that I was going to be on this historic expedition doing what I was doing, I would have said, absolutely not. Like, what are you talking about? Exploration and adventure has always been a passion of mine. And I arrived at this place in over a long period of time. Very few people get to do exactly what they want to do right away. Um, I have gotten here doing what I really love to do, this combination of education and exploration through a series of very small choices over the course of many years that kept sort of where the roads diverged. It kept taking me where I wanted to go. And I feel very lucky to have, have arrived someplace that I'm happy about. I also think, and I, I'm inspired by the example of the field scientists I work with. I got to go out on the ice with them in the Weddell Sea and help them do their research. It made me think about when you're thinking about your career, how do you want to spend your day? Are you someone who really likes being on computers and wants to develop software and you know be immersed in that world? Are you someone who needs to interact with a lot of people in order to feel a sense of community? Are you someone who likes to work alone? Are you someone who needs to be outside? You know, each one of those is not tied to a specific profession or job necessarily, but will put you into the right neighborhood or ballpark of something that may be a really good fit for your personality. Um, I always go back to curiosity. Curio as long as you stay open-minded about um, the options that you have, I feel it, and, and do, the, do the work. Read up on organizations that do it. Reach out and try to get coffee with somebody who does something you think sounds really cool. You start to get an idea of some of the, the jobs that are less easy to um, comprehend immediately. We all know what a firefighter does. We all know what a police officer does. But nobody really knows what an explorer does. Like, if you told someone you were an explorer, they'd be like, what? That's not a job. So, you know, you can, as long as you're curious about the world around you and take advantage of the opportunities that you have, I think you'll, you'll end up in the right direction. And my last bit of advice, and this is a very reach the world message, is that we live in a global world and everything is connected and you cannot live within your own community and not at least be aware of how the world impacts what you do. I would encourage you to be curious about other cultures, to travel if you can, to learn a new language, to meet somebody different than you, to engage with the broader world because the world is increasingly more global. And the more you can understand and be um, curious and, and cooperative with people from other cultures, the more successful you'll be in that situation. What a stunningly great answer. And for so many reasons, you know, your life and your pathway are really are just a series of small choices and they're important, but in the end, your path is your path. And, you know, sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves over these choices. We just never know where that, that path is going to lead. I'm a huge advocate for people figuring out what makes them tick, what their personality is, this whole idea of intellectual curiosity. Uh, we were so, so curious about so many of the different topics that we talked about here today and, and your message to young people to remain curious and then to stay connected globally, we do indeed live in a in a society in a world that is connected in ways that certainly weren't connected in the in the days of Sir Ernest Shackleton. Right, we're in a different world. Take advantage of that, and and that's just great advice as well. Tim Jacob, the director of the Traveler Program for Reach the World, one of the people that was on the expedition, the successful expedition 
to locate Ernest Shackleton's vessel, the Endurance, at the bottom of the wet LC is our guest today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Tim, this has been just a fascinating, absolutely intriguing episode for me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.